from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, August 27th. Today, the latest from protests in Kenosha. Why mail-in ballots get rejected. And how climate change and a pandemic complicate a hurricane. What's your name? Jasmine Flores. And how old are you? I'm 17. 17. What, um, what made you want to come out tonight? Just because, like, I'm not even going to lie, I've seen some change, and you know. Jingle play! Jingle play! Jingle play! Jingle play! I arrived in Kenosha, Wisconsin on Wednesday. Kim Belware is a national reporter for The Post. I'm in Kenosha because Jacob Blake, a black man, was shot on Sunday by a Kenosha police officer. And he has survived the shooting. His family says that he remains paralyzed. But in the days since um, the shooting that was caught on cell phone video, there have been protests in the street, including some that turned deadly on Tuesday night where two protesters were shot and killed. The details on the Blake shooting are pretty sparse right now. One of the reasons is because Wisconsin is one of the few, if not the only state, that requires police investigations to be handled by an outside agency. So normally where you would have the department give some details, uh, there really haven't been many other than, you know, basic confirmation of the time, the name of an officer has been confirmed, and there have been reports that there was a domestic dispute and, you know, some talk that Jacob Blake had been trying to break up some kind of conflict um, when police arrived on the scene to this domestic call. In this cell phone video that we think was taken by a neighbor across the street, we can see Jacob Blake uh, walking around the front of his car and several police officers are following him. At one point, he opens the driver's side door and so we can't see all of the details there, but we see one officer reach for his shirt and try and pull him back and then you hear seven gunshots and four of those struck him. No peace! No peace! So Tuesday night marked the third night of protests since Blake's shooting, and those ones really escalated compared to the nights before and the night after it. There was a pretty large police presence. There were a lot of protesters. And the other thing that had not been as common was there was this additional presence of people who were self-styled militia members, people who had showed up with rifles, long guns. According to some other Post reporters who were on the scene Tuesday, they said a lot of these guys who had guns were really young. Some of them said that they wanted to come out and protect property or to support police. At one point, all we know of the shootings are that this one suspect, Kyle Rittenhouse, fired on someone and then ran away, fell, and when protesters went to follow him, he shot again and hit one 
fatally and injured another. One of the big differences between Wednesday night and Tuesday was just talking to people in the crowd. A lot of them said that people were probably scared from the night before and didn't want to come out again. But the people who did come out, a lot of them all said the same thing. They wanted to, you know, show solidarity with the protesters. Um, I'm out here because, frankly, I'm just tired of the police brutality. I myself am a survivor of police brutality. This really hits home for me, you know. I mean, I'm a minority, so this is my son. He's 11, and I just don't want him to grow up in this kind of world anymore. And some of the folks that I talked to, um, including a 17-year-old girl said that racial profiling by police in Kenosha is something that she and her boyfriend and her friends and family have all dealt with at that age. I have siblings, my youngest sister right now, she's like my heart, I'm not going to lie to you. And it scares me because what if one day they look at her, she, yes, she's mixed and everything, but what if they look at her one day and they're like, you know, like, she could be too much of one race and it could just end her life, you know what I mean? I mean, I've been racially profiled. I've been, you know, like, it just happened to us yesterday, so. In, in Kenosha? Yeah. As Kim was doing this interview, a police car started driving by the group really slowly. Then the car doubled back, and the protesters were kind of hesitant to keep talking to Kim. Make you nervous that they stopped? No, but we're, you know, just walking and talking. You guys, like, stopped and turned the corner. I mean, does that, is that what happens? Is it, like, if you, if you see, like, is that what it takes? Like, you see, you see the cops and you're just, like. They don't play, they don't play around here. Like, if they see you just, like, you know, your skin color, they're going to stop, say something to you. Like, you know, I remember, what was it, like, a week back, they stopped us because they said we were trying to, like, flee from the cops or whatever. Can I ask, did you actually watch the video? Yes, I did watch the video, and it was it was very difficult to watch. I was appalled. I was absolutely appalled. I'm Eugene Robinson. I'm an op-ed columnist and associate editor of The Washington Post. Look at where we are. Go back to May. Go back to the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the officer with his knee on George Floyd's neck. And while we were still uh, in in a, a national uproar over that, look at the killing of Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta, whose crime was falling asleep in a Wendy's drive-in, and uh, he ends up being, being shot to death. And on and on. Of course, we saw the, the wave of protests. We saw 
the nation beginning to sort of confront, if not fully reckon with, systemic racism in a way that it hadn't done before. And yet still, we see a black man apparently unarmed, apparently unthreatening, getting into his car and being shot seven times. Somehow, when black men are the suspects in these sorts of petty crimes, the situation gets escalated to the point where police use deadly force. And what strikes me about a lot of these incidents is that, you know, I think that when we're talking about shootings by police officers, oftentimes they're described as split-second decisions. But in the case of George Floyd, I mean, that was not split seconds. That was about eight minutes that this police officer had his knee on George Floyd's neck. And then in this case, in what happened to Jacob Blake, a split-second decision would be one shot, not seven shots. That's exactly right, Martine. And and really, the problem is that some sort of decision has been made even before the encounter, right? The police come into these encounters ready to use unnecessary and deadly force because they bring to these encounters the assumption that for some reason, these black men pose a deadly threat to them, even when they're not armed, even when they, to any sort of outside observer, seem to pose no threat. But there's a, there's a mentality, there's, there's an idea that you have to be ready to shoot if you're encountering a black man. And, and that's just unacceptable. And it's just it happened time and time and time again. And you know, when are we going to get past this? When are we going to deal with this? One of the things that we've seen since Sunday is members of Jacob Blake's family being very public about what has happened to him and and speaking incredibly powerfully about their grief and pain and fear and about how his injury and his shooting um, fits into the context of what has happened to Black Americans for decades. So many people have reached out to me telling me they're sorry that this happened to my family. Well, don't be sorry, because this has been happening to my family for a long time, longer than I can account for. It happened to Emmett Till. Mm. Emmett Till is my family. Mm. Philando, Mike Brown, Mm. Sandra. This has been happening to my family. It kind of strikes me that there is so much pressure on these families who understand the responsibility that they have to basically put their personal feelings of of anguish and fear aside in this moment and be a public figure and public spokesperson to try to get people to pay attention and to listen. Yes, there is that pressure put on family members, and it's completely unfair and then they are they are expected number 1 to be spokes 
people for black America in, in a way that no one person or one family should be expected to represent. This is nothing new. I'm not sad. I'm not sorry. I'm angry. Mm. And I'm tired. Mm. I haven't cried one time. I stopped crying years ago. Mm. I am numb. I have been watching police murder people that look like me for years. Mm. I'm not sad. I don't want your pity. I want change. And second, they are expected to adopt an attitude of grace that is, again, is an unfair burden. They are expected to tell everyone to calm down um, and and let's let's have no violence. All of which are, are good sentiments and are, and are right, but it, it shouldn't be the family that is really under, under pressure and expectations to sort of police the reaction to the shooting. It's just a, an almost a, a ritual now. I want to talk also about the shooting of the protesters in the days after what happened to Jacob Blake and the fact that you have this 17-year-old white teenager who was taken into custody after killing two people and was taken into custody peacefully in a way that is pretty hard to imagine would happen to anyone Black. What did you make of that and about the what this teenager kind of represents? It's not hard to imagine that happening to anyone Black. It's impossible to imagine that happening to anyone Black. And that's not the reality we know in Black America, that's for sure. And the fact that the 17-year-old seemed to think of himself as part of a militia um, or that he was there to protect businesses rather than just to enact violence, how do you think that is landing with white Americans? I mean, do you think that there is a sense of sympathy for this idea that that white peoples should be empowered to show up with weapons to a protest in the name of protecting property? Well, I think there is some sympathy. I think if there were not some sympathy out there for white people who react in this way. I think the the McCloskeys, the St. Louis couple, the brandish weapons at a group of protesters uh, during the the George Floyd moment. And then they're highlighted during the Republican National Convention. Exactly. That's where I was going. That, that They would not have been uh, invited to, to speak at the Republican Convention. And so clearly the Republican Party, which does polling and which has a finger on the pulse of public opinion, clearly uh, the party thinks that there is sympathy out there. So then do you think that there is a concern here that the narrative that is going to come out of what's happening in Kenosha for many white Americans is not going to be one about racial injustice and about the Black Lives Matter movement, but is instead about the threat against white people or the need for white people to take action to the, into their own hands or or protect against this like so-called violence that is being talked about that is taking over cities in America. That will certainly be the narrative that some people take away from it. And the question is, how many? So 
So, you know, where do you enter the narrative? Do you enter it um, at, at the moment when there are disturbances and, and, and there's property damage, or do you enter the narrative at the moment when uh, Jacob Blake gets shot? Uh, and I don't know the answer to that. I don't know how many will see it one way and how many will see it the other way. Eugene Robinson is a columnist and editor for The Post. Kim Belware is a national reporter. As we get closer to the election in November, there continue to be questions about how voting will play out, especially with so many people voting by mail for the first time. And political investigative reporter Elise Viebeck wanted to know how that went in the primaries. I asked states around the country for the number of ballots that were rejected during recent primaries. Some primaries happened in March. Some have happened as recently as this month. And we tried to collect as much data as we could to figure out how many people were potentially disenfranchised when they sent a mail ballot to express their choice of candidate. What we found is that more than 534,000 mail ballots Mm. were rejected during the primaries this year. And nearly a quarter of those rejections happened in key battleground states. That sounds like a lot to me, more than 500,000. Do you know what percentage of the ballots that would represent? It's difficult to say because our data wasn't entirely complete. States have not always been forthcoming with the number of ballots that were rejected during their primaries. But what we do know is that this was across 23 states this year. So less than half the states are reflected in that number. You can imagine that across the country, it would be a much larger number, never mind what could happen in November when many more voters are expected to participate in the process. And in fact, the number of rejected ballots could skyrocket in the general election because of an increase in turnout and also because nearly 200 million Americans are eligible to cast ballots by mail. That is an unprecedented number. It represents at least 83% of voters around the country, according to our reporting. About 20 states and the District of Columbia have taken steps to make voting by mail more accessible and easier during the pandemic, which means that a lot of people are going to have access to this option for voting for the first time. Wait, so why were these mail-in ballots rejected? Like, what were the reasons that were cited for why they weren't counted? Some states provided us with that data, others didn't. 
But we do know from studies that one of the most common reasons that mail ballots are rejected are that they didn't arrive back with election officials in time to be counted. They just didn't make it there by the deadline. There's another common reason, which is that in most states, voters will be asked to sign their ballot at least once as a way of verifying it. And in some cases, voters simply forget that step. Maybe they didn't read the directions. Maybe they were moving a little quickly and thought they only needed to mark the candidates that they want to vote for. Mm. But we know with mail ballots, there are a couple of steps typically to make sure that they're valid and voters might skip some of those. And there's no process for coming back to voters and giving them a heads up like, hey, you happened to miss one of the boxes or you didn't check something and uh, you should go over it again so that we can count your ballot. There's not like a process for for helping to correct those things. In fewer than half of the states, there is a process for voters who had problems specifically with their signatures. But yes, around the country, in many places, voters might never even learn that their ballot was rejected, never mind being given an opportunity to fix it. You know, as we've been talking about the challenges to mail-in voting in in recent months and, and leading up to the election... It seems like there are two things that are happening at the same time. There is both the politicization of mail-in voting and the attacks by the president and other politicians against mail-in voting as an idea. Well, then there's also just the chaos of having to ramp up this process and this system so quickly and so intensely because of coronavirus. So when you look at this half million number of rejected ballots. Do you think that it's more of the former? This is a result of intentional efforts to stop these ballots from being counted? Or is it just because of confusion and because people might not have voted by mail before or because there's not really uh, the proper processes in place to make sure that people are doing it right? I would say it's most likely the latter category. We don't have specific evidence that there was some kind of plot at play here to not count people's ballots or to specifically suppress the vote by tossing ballots. That said, there is a lot of confusion among voters. Lots of people were casting mail ballots for the first time in the primaries, and there were a lot of election offices that were overwhelmed trying to handle this massive shift toward mail voting during the coronavirus pandemic. And are there any efforts being taken by state election officials or voting rights advocates now to help people figure out the process and and help make sure that people are going to be able to vote correctly and have their vote counted? Absolutely. There are a lot of public education campaigns that are ramping up as we get closer to the election, a lot of media coverage ramping up where we're trying to help educate the public about what those risks for their ballots not counting are. There are also Democratic lawyers who are filing suits around the country to try to limit the reasons a ballot can be rejected. For example, they want voters to be able to return ballots and have them counted if they are postmarked on election day and received within a couple of days of election day. In many states, the deadlines currently are received 
by the end of the day on election day. And that means if you're a voter who put your ballot in the mail, but there was a mail delay that messed that up, it's outside of your control whether your ballot is ultimately counted. We know from studies that people who are less experienced in the mail voting process tend to be more likely to have their votes not count. And studies have shown that it's actually younger voters and voters of color who, in some cases, are more likely to have their ballots tossed, usually because of some of these rules that can make the process difficult. But if some of these rules are still in place in November, where, you know, a person who submits their ballot, but it doesn't arrive in time for the election, that those votes aren't counted. If that's still the case a couple months from now and anywhere near and and likely more than the number of, of rejected ballots you saw for the primaries happens in the general election, it seems like it's pretty feasible to imagine a world in which the outcome of the presidential election is determined by the fact that a lot of these votes aren't going to be counted. That's right. And it could be a big mess in short, because we're expecting a lot of court action in the wake of the election as both sides file lawsuits to try to get certain votes to count or not count. Here's what I can tell you from our reporting. In 2016, Trump's margin of victory can be traced to roughly 80,000 votes in three states, Hmm. Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. 80,000 votes, roughly. This year, in the primaries alone, we tallied that there were about 60,480 votes that were rejected in those states during the primaries. So so that margin basically already exists. That margin already exists. And in fact, in the state of Michigan, uh, the Secretary of State, Jocelyn Benson, a Democrat, has noted that in that state's recent primary, about 10,700 votes were disqualified. Guess what Trump's margin of victory was in Michigan in 2016? 10,700 votes. Just the same number. So it's going to be very close in some cases, and it could certainly shape the outcome of the presidential election, particularly with large numbers of rejected ballots in these swing states. And it feels like we're already setting up for an election that will look kind of like 2000, where it will be a court battle for months after the election to determine who actually won. Yes. And in 2000, we remember and have heard about the chaos that took place in Florida. But imagine that potentially in different states all at once with different legal battles raging around the country. We should remind listeners that we do not expect the results of the president election necessarily to come to us on election night as usual. The number of mail ballots will be unprecedented and those take longer to process and count, which means that it could take several days, even potentially several weeks for us to get some of those results. And in the meantime, like I said, we are expecting a lot of court action and litigation over whose ballots count. So when it comes to these restrictions that have made it possible for so many of these ballots to go uncounted, what is the argument for keeping them in place? Like, why is it so hard? That argument is coming from Republicans typically during court battles right now. And what they say is that many of these restrictions are important to 
prevent voter fraud and to protect the integrity of the election. So for example, we see the Republican National Committee arguing in court right now that ballots need to be received by the end of the day on election day in order to keep the results secure and make sure the results only reflect valid votes. So you do have arguments coming from another side that these aren't just rules to make life hard for voters. They're actually intended to protect the process from fraud and to make sure that votes that count are not diluted by votes that should not count. So for people who are thinking that they're going to vote by mail, is it Is it safe to do that? And what are ways that they can ensure that their vote actually ends up in the count? It is safe to do that, particularly if you're paying close attention to the instructions, the deadlines, the specific rules in your community. And certainly if you are confused, it's very important for you to talk with your local elections office and have them walk you through it. Or for example, if you feel like you've made a mistake on your ballot in some way, they might be able to get you a new one, toss out the old one, get you a new one and walk you through the process again. At the same time, there may be people who feel safe voting in person. Election jurisdictions around the country are going to try to make that possible for you. The election experts that I've spoken with say that it's important that people have options, not just to vote in person, not just to vote by mail, but ideally both. In many jurisdictions, they are going to be trying to allow you to vote early and in person. So essentially going to a polling place the way you would normally on election day, but doing it a week in advance, maybe even two weeks in advance. And that will allow people to socially distance. It might cut down on lines. So it's important for voters to know the options in their communities The best advice from election officials, from experts, is familiarize yourself with the rules. They really matter this year. Elise Viebeck is a political investigative reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing. Last night, we had one of the strongest hurricanes on record to ever hit southwest Louisiana, come ashore around midnight to 2 a.m. I'm Andrew Friedman, and I'm the deputy weather editor for The Post. We knew that this was possible. The Gulf of Mexico right now is unusually warm. It is basically bathtub water. We knew that if the atmosphere allowed it to take off, this storm was just gonna go and and go fast. And 24 hours before landfall, the storm started to take on a classic look on satellite imagery that gave meteorologists pause and gave many of us really kind of a pit in the stomach feeling because you knew that rapid intensification was beginning. It went from Category 1 to Category 4 in 24 hours. There is a climate change connection. What we know with pretty good confidence is that hurricanes are becoming more intense more quickly. 
But when you see the National Hurricane Center warn of an unsurvivable storm surge that could push water 40 miles inland, it's astounding. The notion of water being pushed that far is going to reshape the coast forever. Compound events is kind of what scientists refer to this as, where you have more than one disaster playing out at the same time. Uh, you've had that in California with the wildfires and the pandemic. You've had that now with a major hurricane and the pandemic. What that did was that it caused FEMA to have a lighter footprint on the ground and do more of their support activities from DC and regional offices, which we don't know exactly how that's going to play out because they're the ones who kind of oversee the process of evaluating whether you're going to get federal disaster funding or not. For evacuations, instead of opening these giant shelters, states and local communities started telling people, go inland, find family and friends to stay with. If you cannot find them or there are concerns of exposing them to COVID risk, to stay in a hotel. And that if you did have to go to a shelter, that's sort of a last resort. You're going to have to bring PPE. They have limited capacity because they have to enforce social distancing. This was the largest evacuation during the pandemic so far. This was more than 500,000 people on the move. But if we have another major hurricane, which we very well could, given the way this season is going, that spurs a bigger evacuation. Uh, my mind is going back to Hurricane Rita, which hit the same sort of area, or Hurricane Floyd along the East Coast. Those storms set more than a million people into motion. If you have a hurricane that's threatening a more heavily populated area and even a bigger area, like an East Coast hurricane, that's going to be much more challenging. And I don't know that we're really ready for that. Andrew Friedman is the deputy weather editor for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you're planning on watching the last night of the Republican National Convention, there is nowhere better to do that than at WashingtonPost.com, where we've been airing the live, uninterrupted feed of the RNC and the DNC, and we'll have President Trump's speech tonight. Tune in at WashingtonPost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post.